0: If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Mark chapter 10. And uh, despite Mark's very kind introduction of me, let me introduce myself to those who may be guests or you're newer newer to the church. Uh, As Mark said, I serve on the pastoral team here, but in kind of a, a distinct role in that I lead a separate nonprofit we established 21 years ago this year, called Covenant Mercies. And Covenant Mercies exists to care for orphans in partnership, in collaboration with our brothers and sisters in the developing world. And so we've been developing that ministry for 21 years now. By God's grace, we're currently serving almost 1,700 fatherless children in Uganda, Ethiopia, Zambia, and most recently, Liberia. And many of you are, amen, amen. Many of you are sponsoring those children. I look forward to bringing you an update uh, at the end of the sermon, but we always want to begin in God's Word and remind ourselves of what our deep, deep biblical motivation is for this type of work. So if you're with me in Mark chapter 10, I want to begin reading in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and lord we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word well have you ever watched a demonstration of oil being poured into a clear container of water Since both appear to be liquids, we would expect them to dissolve into one another as most liquid substances do. But as you likely know, this doesn't happen with oil and water. And as a result, as a result of the way oil molecules interact with water molecules, they remain distinct from one another even as they're poured into the same container. No matter how much you stir them up, you can stir them vigorously. No matter how much you stir up these two substances together, as soon as you stop stir- stirring, they will separate. It's clarifying. You can look at that container and know exactly which molecules are oil and exactly which ones are water. Well, I love the clarifying moment that Jesus brings us in today's text as well. There are a few times in the Gospels where he uses this phrase or some similar phrase, not so with you, where he's communicating a clear contrast between the way of the world and the way of the kingdom, a characteristic that distinguishes those who are disciples of Christ from those who are not. I'll know you're my disciple, Jesus says, by observing whether this is so with you or whether this is not so with you. Based on this characteristic, I'll know that you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Oh, you may be poured into the same container, you might be stirred around and shaken, but at the end of the day, we can see the difference, just like we see the difference between the oil and the water. There's a way that's common to man, but it is not so with you. It is not so in the kingdom of God, which so often takes the values of the world and not only rejects them, but turns them completely upside down. In this case, the worldly value that's turned upside down is the idea of what constitutes greatness. Jesus defines greatness for us here in a way that is radically distinct from the world, radically countercultural in the culture of his own day and in reference to the cultures of our present day as well. Now, why are we talking about this on Covenant Mercy Sunday? Well, simply put, because this pursuit of greatness, as biblically defined, is fundamental to our identity and our mission in Covenant Mercies. Orphans growing up in the poorest communities that are embedded within the poorest nations on the face of the earth represent the lowliest of the low in the world's terms. By taking initiative toward them, not that they would serve us, but that we would serve them, in doing that, we pursue greatness as Jesus defines it here. So in the balance of our time in the word, I wanna reflect on this theme of greatness in three sections, the self-serving disciples, the self-sacrificing savior, and the self-subordination of true greatness. Now that third one is really the lone point of the sermon. The first two are just setting the narrative stage for the main point that we will get to when Jesus talks about the self-subordination of true greatness. So let's begin with the self-serving disciples. Mark describes a scene in which Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. They're traveling on foot with Jesus up ahead, leading the way. And Jesus bears his soul to his disciples, confiding in them about the hard road that lies ahead, which will soon result in his death, At the hands of the religious leaders and the civil authorities. Now you might think that Jesus' friends, his disciples, would offer him a bit of moral support here. Maybe put their arm around Jesus. Am I getting this right? You're about to be taken and killed. Scripture doesn't record that. We can be, let's, let's, in fact, let's do this. Let's be gracious, let's be charitable toward our brothers, the disciples, and believe that obviously Scripture doesn't record every detail of their interactions. interactions. So we can hope, we can hope that somebody offered Jesus a bit of moral support here. But regardless, it doesn't take them long before they start jockeying for position and prestige. James and John, whom Jesus has nicknamed the sons of thunder, come to him with a request to sit at his right hand and his left in his glory. These represent positions of honor, authority, and power, the most privileged positions in the coming kingdom. Frankly, it's, it's cringeworthy. You read this and you're like, guys, are you serious? You're coming to Jesus after what he's just confided in you and saying like he's a genie come out of a bottle? Grant me whatever I ask you for. It's cringeworthy, it really is. But far from merely cringing at James and John's impudence and and letting it roll off their backs, we're told that the other 10 become indignant. They become angry with James and John. And these guys are great at arguing. They love to argue about who among them is the greatest. Just one chapter earlier in chapter nine, we were told that they were on the road arguing with one another about which one of them was the greatest. I have a theory that I don't think the nickname Sons of Thunder was helpful to James and John in this argument, you know, in terms of approaching it with humility. Just imagine them going to Simon. So, Simon, what, what was the nickname Jesus gave you? Oh, Peter. Hmm, rock. I mean, but it's kind of quiet. I mean, I'm sure that hurricane, tsunami, things like that were already taken. So. But regardless, the Sons of Thunder apparently think they've won the latest round in this debate, and this entitles them to make their bold request of Jesus. And this triggers yet another argument amongst the disciples, revealing perhaps that it's not just James and John who want positions of prominence and status and power and influence. It's all 12 of them. James and John just have more audacity than the rest of them. Now, it's easy for us to shake our head, you know, SMH, for the old folks, that means shaking my head. Um, Look at the disciples here and just shake our heads and roll our eyes and, guys, really... But I think part of the reason for that is that this idea, we're not a monarchical people, this idea of sitting at the right and the left of the king doesn't really have much natural appeal to us. So let's ask ourselves some hard questions in our our more modern American way of thinking. Are there any ways that we've bought into the world's values in relation to these things? What do your aspirations and life pursuits reveal about your definition of greatness? If you had the audacity of James and John to ask Jesus to do for you whatever you ask of him, what would you be asking for? What would make you great if you achieved it or acquired it? What would separate you from the pack and make your life truly noteworthy and significant? Well, the world has lots of answers to those questions. Own a home in this zip code, drive this kind of car, wear this brand of clothing, have this many figures in your salary or investment portfolio, have this many people reporting to you in your office, be an influencer on social media with this many followers, carry this kind of phone in your pocket, not that kind of phone that makes you feel embarrassed every time you pull it out in front of your friends. These are the things that signal to the world that we've arrived, that we have achieved greatness. And Jesus has four clarifying words for us here, not so with you. But he's so patient and he's so gracious toward his disciples and toward us as well, even as he calls us to a higher standard. So let's look briefly at our self-sacrificing Savior. Jesus is on a mission. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem would have been routine for all observant Jews of the time, But this was no ordinary journey for Jesus. He's conscious of the fact that he's going to Jerusalem to lay down his life. And as we noted earlier, he's starting to let his disciples know that this is what's going to happen to him. Although, even phrasing it like that, saying that these events will happen to him, is a bit too passive to capture the full picture, isn't it? Jesus is not about to become the passive victim of the malice of others. The events that will unfold in Jerusalem will be the greatest injustice of all of history. But Jesus goes into it with his eyes wide open. He goes into it intentionally to give himself as a sacrifice. In the parallel passage in Luke, where Luke tells us in in chapter 9, verse 51, he says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the NIV, it's translated, he set out resolutely. Jesus is resolved. His life will not be taken from him. He has set his face to give it willingly. In his own words, in John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Or as he put it in today's text in verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. None, we shouldn't be confused by that word many. All of us are in need of this ransom every one of us even the self uh, selected the, the hand-picked disciples that jesus picked himself are a hot mess in need of his rescue and maybe you realize today that you're just like them if you're here today maybe you came last week as a guest for the first time to the chicken barbecue you've joined us again There is one thing that I want you to hear very clearly this morning. Jesus is not on his way to Jerusalem merely to set an example for you so that you can pattern your life after him and self-help your way into the kingdom of God. He is on his way to Jerusalem to give up his life on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sins and ransom you from its power. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're still wrestling with those things, please grab me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more. Grab any one of the pastors. Talk to the person who invited you. Don't leave here today thinking of Jesus merely as a great teacher or a moral example. But even as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to complete his rescue mission by dying on that cross, along the way, he's also teaching us about the way of the kingdom, Versus the way of the world. And in contrast, and and the contrast that we see in this narrative between the self serving disciples and the self sacrificing Savior sets the table for the stark contrast Jesus is about to draw between those who are considered great in the value system of the world and those who are considered great in the kingdom of God. This brings us directly to our main point the self subordination of true greatness. Read with me again, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The contrast Jesus draws for us here is between the way of the world, how it is among the Gentiles, and the way of the kingdom, how it is among you. The contrast is between the value system of fallen man and the value system of God's redeemed people. And please note, Jesus does not say that it's worldly to aspire to greatness, that kingdom minded people would never aspire to be great because that would be too self-focused, that would be inherently selfish. No, in fact, he's encouraging them to aspire to greatness. He just wants them to define it rightly. The definition he gives them is a complete inversion of the world's definition. This reminds me so much of Randy Alcorn's excellent teaching in his books, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, or the shortened version of that, The Treasure Principle, where he teaches from Matthew 6 where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, sorry, (laughs) I caught that. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. It's common to look at the negative side of Jesus's command there and say, well, of course, that's, that's, feels so obvious we shouldn't store up treasures on earth we shouldn't store up treasures for ourselves like that that is greedy that is so selfish that's too self-focused for good disciples like us but as randy so insightfully points out jesus doesn't forbid us from storing up treasures he doesn't even forbid us from storing them up for ourselves In fact, he tells us to do it, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Essentially, what Jesus teaches is that it's good to store up treasures for yourselves. It's just foolish to store them up in the wrong place. He's not telling us that our self-interest is inherently sinful. He's appealing to our self-interest. He just wants us to have an eternal self-interest instead of a temporal self-interest That's defined in the world's terms. Well, it's a similar concept here. Jesus isn't suggesting that you shouldn't want to be great. He's simply saying you shouldn't aspire to greatness as the world defines it. The rulers of the Gentiles, that is the world, lord it over them. The world is obsessed with power and privilege and position and status and all the residual benefits that come along with those things. It's the way of the world to jostle for position as the disciples are doing here, clamoring to be at the right and left of Jesus. They believe this is what makes them great. They believe this is what makes them first in importance and stature. But Jesus says, not so with you. So, if that doesn't define true greatness, how does Jesus define it? What does does make a person great in the value system of the kingdom? Verse 43, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus lays out a completely new paradigm for understanding greatness. And I love the way Sinclair Ferguson reflects on this new paradigm when he says, the way of the disciple is different from the way of the world. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we've climbed, but in how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb For the sake of others. True discipleship has at its heart letting go of our desire for honor in this world in order to bestow honor on others. This is a radical recalibration, and Jesus uses two words here to describe greatness. Servant suggests an activity. Uh, The the Greek term here that many of us would be familiar with is is diakonos. It's the term from which we get the word deacon, one whose role it is to serve others in the church. by By serving, we mean taking action aimed not at meeting your own needs, but at meeting the needs of others. Think of a waiter who comes to your table, my name is Doug, and I will be your server. What I'm saying is, for the next hour, I'm here to take care of all of your needs. Now, slave suggests even more than this. The Greek term here is doulos, also familiar to many of us. Jesus is making a powerful statement here, beyond the mere activity of serving, to the idea of status. How do you think of yourself in the social hierarchy he's asking us what rung on the ladder do you see yourself occupying is your life all about the the effort to climb past others on your way up the ladder or are you prepared to climb down that ladder in order to serve others all the way to the bottom to serve the lowliest of the low are you ready to wrap a towel around your waist and wash the feet of those that the world would say are beneath you? This, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, slavery also suggests a sense of obligation or ownership. A servant performs an activity, performs the activity of serving, but he's free to go. A slave has no choice in the matter. He is bound To his master. Now I have to confess with you, I find myself challenged but reasonably comfortable with the calling to serve others. I find myself challenged to the point of discomfort with this idea of making myself a slave to others. Oh, I'll I'll serve you. I might even serve you with joy because that's what I chose to do you don't own me. Don't try to put yourself above me. You're not the boss of me. What does Jesus mean here that we must be the slave of all? Is he suggesting that we should completely turn ourselves over to others, mind, will, and body? Your wish is my command. Well, to be clear, that is what it means to be a slave of Christ, and this is a common New Testament metaphor. Paul, as he writes the epistles that we're so familiar with all throughout the New Testament, refers to himself constantly as a slave of Christ. He refers to all Christians as slaves of Christ and slaves to righteousness. We submit our will, our desires, our manner of thinking, our manner of living, everything, to Christ, he owns us down to our every thought. We're not free to do our own thing and write our own code. But this can't be what it means to be a slave of all because as Jesus himself said, no slave can serve two masters. If we're slaves of Christ in terms of being in complete submission of him, then we can't be in complete submission to everyone else. I love the way Murray Harris wrestles with this tension in another book I highly recommend called Slave of Christ. Uh, the, he's, he's wrestling with the tension between being first and foremost a slave of Christ and then in some other sense being a slave of others or as Jesus puts it here, a slave of all. And Harris is is commenting on Paul's statement to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7 that they are slaves of Christ. They've been bought with a price and therefore they should not bring themselves under the yoke of slavery to others. So how do we understand Jesus' words in light of this? Well, Harris puts it simply. It is because Christians were bought at a price, the price of blood, that they can belong to no one other than their purchaser. Slavery to people's whims and fancies, to their requests and demands, compromises the prior and exclusive claim of Christ to the Christian's total devotion. Now, it may sound like we're, we're splitting hairs here or, or stating the obvious, but this is an important distinction for us to make because we are living in a world that demands our complete submission in increasingly invasive ways. You must think this way. You must speak these words. You must take this injection. You must demonstrate your deference to this new social dogma. To be clear, I left those things intentionally vague. Any of those things could be fine for us to submit to if it does nothing to compromise our prior and exclusive claim of Christ on our total devotion. But the point is, Jesus is not requiring us here to switch off our brains and slavishly submit to every new demand that comes down the pike. He calls us the slaves of all. We are slaves of all in a in a derivative way, in the sense that our prior and exclusive slavery and submission to Christ requires us and makes us willing as we adopt the heart of Christ to climb down that ladder, to lower ourselves, to serve others even and maybe especially the neediest of the needy and the lowliest of the low. I could spend the afternoon telling you stories of our friends and partners in those four African countries that I mentioned. Uh, Our partners, our indigenous partners there, are the ones that are carrying out this work in the field day after day. They are primarily, by and large, middle-class Africans who are serving the neediest of the needy in the surrounding communities. I'm gonna have to be satisfied to tell you this one story. Several years ago, a 14-year-old boy in our Ethiopian program named Nahum was diagnosed with late-stage colorectal cancer. Uh, It was inoperable. And Helena Atlabacho, who is our program coordinator to this day, but at that time was the lone employee of our program, you're looking at a picture of Helena there in the middle with a couple of girls in our program. I, I didn't have a picture of Helena with Nahum that I was happy to show you. But Helena, at that time, was the lone employee. She recruited a team of volunteers from our partner church to help take care of Nahum's needs as they took him to the hospital. They took him for chemotherapy and radiation, even though there was, there was, much, there was little they could do to help him at that time. Now, when I say hospital, don't imagine a hospital where uh, there's a staff to take care of all your personal hygienic needs no most patients would rely on their families their loved ones for those sort of things but nahum was parentless and his aunt and uncle who served as his guardians didn't have the capacity to serve him in this way so helena and this group of volunteers stood in for nahum's family When he needed to go from one place to another in the hospital, they carried him. When he was scared, they spent the night with him in his hospital room. When he became incontinent, they changed his diapers. They bathed him. They put clean clothes on him, sometimes literally the shirt off their own backs. Meanwhile, they were sharing the gospel with Nahum every time they got the opportunity. And Nahum was a thoughtful kid. He came from a religious background that made it difficult for him to easily embrace the gospel. He had to be persuaded that what the things they were saying, that the things they were saying were true. Now, can you imagine how their sacrificial service to him authenticated the truth of the words they were saying Well eventually, sometime before the Lord took him home, Nahum tearfully and genuinely confessed his faith in Christ. And I just pray that I am within hearing distance in eternity when they stand before Christ. And he says to them, enter into your reward for when I was sick, you visited me. And they say, Jesus, when did we ever see you sick and visit you? And I just imagine in that moment he'll pull Nahum up by his side Maybe he'll pull a whole multitude of children up by his side and say, even as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. This is what true greatness looks like. And once this kingdom mindset clicks in for you, you will see how consistent it is in all of Scripture. He lifts the needy from the ashes and seats them with princes. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In language that will be familiar to all of us from our recent Philippian series, actually from the the scripture reading this morning as well, this kingdom mindset means that we count others more significant than ourselves. It means we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others as the body of christ in our world it means that we seek to embody the life and mission of the one who though he was in very nature god did not consider equality with god a thing to be grasped but humbled himself taking the form of a slave now i know our english translations all Say servant there, but Paul actually uses that word doulas in Philippians 2. Taking the form of a slave, submitting himself to the Father's will so that by his great act of self-subordination, others would be brought to glory. Now you remember how that section of Philippians 2 concludes, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, I want you to follow the kingdom logic here because it corresponds with the definition of greatness Jesus is laying out for us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, Jesus is not bestowed with this honor in spite of the fact that he lowered himself, he's bestowed with this honor precisely because he lowered himself. This is the definition of greatness in the kingdom of God. You want to be first? Lower yourself to the lowest position. You want to be great? Put yourself beneath those who are considered the lowliest of the low in the eyes of the world. Now, in Jesus' case, he was quite literally lowering himself In our case, we're merely recognizing that the lowly in our world are our equals and treating them as such. This is one of the many things that I loved and appreciated so much about our dearly departed brother, Wilbrod Chanda. Uh, For those who are newer to the church, Wilbrod was the uh, founder, uh, the founding pastor of Christ Community Church. The church the partner church in Sovereign Grace that Marty prayed for this morning. Uh, Will Broad and his wife, Zicky, also together founded Lighthouse Christian School, with whom Covenant Mercies has partnered for more than 15 years now to care for fatherless children, to provide quality Christian education for fatherless children in their community. Uh, Will brought up, and, and sadly, uh, the Lord took Will Broad home, uh, hard to believe, two and a half years ago now, um, unexpectedly. Now, Wilbrod was an accomplished man. Uh, He was a well respected pastor in the city of Ndola. In fact, for many years before he planted Christ Community Church, he led the largest and most well-known Baptist church in the city of Ndola. He was a respected pastor. He was a teacher of teachers. He would teach and train other pastors, and he was very much looked up to in this sense. He was a PhD-level theologian. He was operating on a high level theologically, intellectually, in all these different capacities as a leader but he was captivated by this biblical mindset, this kingdom mindset that we are reflecting on this morning. His heart resonated deeply with these things, and there's a story that I love to tell about him that, that illustrates this. Um, each time uh, we build a new building on the campus of Lighthouse Christian School, so Covenant Mercies has, has partnered with Lighthouse to buy the land, to expand the campus through the years, and each time we open a new building, uh, we have what we call an official opening ceremony and all the students and their families are invited, others from the community are invited, even some of the VIPs from the community uh, often come. The mayor's been to at least one of these. Uh, others from the Ministry of Education are always there when we do this. And so Will Broad wisely uh, trained me, coached me as the consummately informal American that I am Uh, that when these VIPs are in the audience, there are certain things you have to do up front. You have to observe these protocols. You have to say the honorable such and such and and all that. So he coached me on all of these things, and I remember this one one opening ceremony that we were doing. I I went through all the protocols, and, and I just couldn't resist at the end just kind of quipping. Now, we thank God for all of you VIPs. Uh, We really thank God you're taking time out of your busy schedule to to celebrate with us today, but I want you to know something about Lighthouse Christian School. The real VIPs of Lighthouse Christian School are seated right over there. And I pointed to the tent that had all the students in their uniforms sitting under it. Will Broad loved this, and he constantly referred back to it for years after that. Um, in fact, the, the VIPs became our internal shorthand for referring to the children. Uh, we'd be sitting in a board meeting, and Will Broad's chairing the meeting, and he'd be talking about the VIPs and how it's all about the VIPs. It is such a blessing. Uh, the Lord has really been kind to us to give us such partners to do this ministry with, partners who join us in embracing these deeply biblical values, and that goes well beyond the gift of Will Broad. Well, one of our original VIPs in Zambia is a young man named Charles Mwanza, and we wanna show you a video now testifying to the things the Lord has done in Charles's life through the sacrificial service of, of God's people in serving him, so let's go ahead and roll that video.
1: My name is Charles. I'm a teacher of math and religious education. During my early grades, I think the time I was in the third grade, I had challenges with school, with my education, because my uncle and aunt couldn't afford to take me to school.
2: Charles lost both of his parents when he was a little boy. He moved in to stay with his uncle and aunt. But even at that time, they could not afford to pay for his school fees. We started sponsoring him, I think, when he was in fourth grade. But he proved to be a very good uh, young man in terms of academics and even his, uh, uh, just the way he, took, he he carried himself was just uh, such a humble young man.
1: By the coming of Covenant Misses, they helped me with the sponsorship program and I went back to school. After getting the sponsorship, I had hope again I knew that I'm going, I'm going to finish school. Um, the time I was sponsored, it, it gave me hope because the time I wasn't sponsored, we had challenges uh, in terms of paying school fees, uh, buying of uniforms. Being a teacher is something that I just uh, dreamt of even the time I was young. I don't know how it just came in because it was just in me.
2: So at seventh grade, you was able to pass to go to high school. 12th grade, he had very good results, and uh, he was able to go to uh, Crossway College of Education, and uh, through my Apollo scholarship, Charles was able to graduate from the Teacher College uh, of Education.
1: Upon my completion uh, of my secondary school, I thought that was the end, because that's what I knew, that uh, once I'm done with grade 12, that'll be the, the end of it. So receiving the news about um, Apollo uh, gave me another hope and I knew that this time around I think I'm going to achieve my dreams and I applied for it and I was awarded this great, great opportunity. I was sponsored and I, I even uh, did my course as a teacher. During my sponsorship program, uh, the time I was in school with the desire of becoming a teacher, w- I've always been dreaming of teaching at Naira
2: When we now started the grade 8 class, I just remember ja- uh, Charles had already graduated from teacher college. So we asked him to come over for the interview and uh, he came and through the interview he proved himself that he could do this job, he could get this job. And that's how we hired uh, Charles and he started working here at Lighthouse Christian School.
1: Okay, another
2: one.
1: Being at Lighthouse, again, uh, as a teacher, I think this is an opportunity which will give hope also to, to my fellow friends who are being sponsored. Looking at me again, like I said, uh, gives them a hope as well and the feeling that if this one did it, we can also do it. So with what has transpired in my life and me personally being a teacher, I think I would use also the same opportunity to preach Christ to my students as well. Same where's the can really express how I feel uh, towards God, for what he has been doing in my life, uh, the people that he has brought in my life, my family, people at Lighthouse um, and Ziki for the support and the encouragement towards school Uh, even my sponsors. It's not easy sponsoring a child whom they've never even met before, so I'm really grateful for that. I count it to be a blessing, that's why I'm saying that um, I'm a living testament, so thank you so much.
0: Well, as most of you know, and as, as certainly came through in that video, education is a critical component to the care we provide for nearly 1,700 sponsored kids in, in four countries now. Uh, the grade eight students that Charles referred to, Charles and Ziki both spoke of the coming of the grade eight students, that represents our most recent expansion uh, in Zambia with Lighthouse Christian School, where we now have 331 sponsored children who are receiving quality Christian education uh, each and every week of the year. Uh, In addition, uh, the, the addition of a science and computer lab, which were part of our most recent building expansion, were instrumental in preparing us for these higher grades. So we got permission this year from the Ministry of Education to add the grade eight classes. Lord willing, next year we will add grade nine and keep expanding the number of students we're able to serve at Lighthouse Christian School we're also expanding year by year at hope community primary school in western uganda we got a great photo of the young students there at hope community we broke ground on this project in 2019 uh, opened classes for students in 2020 and we presently have 172 sponsored students in pre-k through grade 3 at Hope Community and I want you to take a look at the campus as it has developed thus far. This is uh, the beautiful campus and I wish David Myinja was here, I hear those gasps. Um, David Mayenja has been with Covenant Mercies, he has been our Director of Interna- International Development for 15 years now, and no one, humanly speaking, is more responsible for the beauty of this campus than David, who has worked along with uh, engineers in Uganda and on both the planning and the implementation of this beautiful campus. So I wish he was here. He's, he was going to be here. Uh, sadly, he's under the weather today, but uh, I will pass along your appreciation to him. <laughs> Amen. Now I want you to notice the two unpainted buildings there. Those are the buildings that are currently under construction. Um, So to the left there, the, the rectangular building is the newest three classroom blocks, so this will give us enough space to add grade four. Next year we're just adding one new grade each year as we expand, and then the, and it actually will last us for a couple more years after that. Uh, But then the the square building, the two story building that you see to the right there will be our library and computer lab on the campus of of Hope Community as well. And thanks to the VBS kids at Covenant Fellowship this year who I think raised over $2,000 to stock that library with books as soon as it's finished and and ready to be opened. Well, our big announcement last year was the addition of a new work in Liberia where we are partnering with Grace Life Church and sponsoring 50 children to receive their education through Grace Life Academy. There you see Sonny who is the lone full-time employee of our program thus far uh, with a couple of our kids in, in front of their home. Um, in the early days of developing this work, we're adding new children slowly. We actually have five Liberian kids on, uh, available for sponsorship today. So Lord willing, we're just gonna gradually begin growing this program a bit more, but we're still in the early days, so we're, we're getting through the learning curve on all of these things and not expanding rapidly there just yet. Uh, we've also worked together with the Grace Life a team there. Grace Life Group is a whole group of ministries that includes Grace Life Church and Grace Life Academy. We've worked together with them to buy a piece of land, to get a site plan in place, and to break ground on the construction of the campus of Grace Life Academy. So Lord willing, this is, this is the, uh, the campus as it looks thus far. That little building in the background is a warehouse where we can store all the construction workers, can store all their Uh, materials and the the footer is now in place for the foundation of the first building on the campus of Grace Life Academy. Uh, By the way, Diona Thomas, the pastor of Grace Life Church, will be preaching here in November, the Sunday before uh, he flies in for the pastor's conference in Orlando. So I look forward to all of you getting to know Diona and hearing a bit more about this from him. Well, Covenant Fellowship thank you for the many ways you generously support this work. Uh, even though it's primarily our brothers and sisters, our indigenous partners on the ground who are doing the hands-on work in the trenches, uh, we all have a part in supporting this by, through our finances, through our prayers, and in other ways as well. Uh, I think I got a minute here where I can give a brief shout-out to the, the team of uh, youth and young adults who went to Ethiopia this year to put on a youth camp for, our, for 83 of our sponsored teens in Addis, and it made such a huge impact. Several, we've had four kids who've given their lives to Christ as a result of that week, and Girum, our official evangelist in our program there, is, is leading them through on Saturdays now through a foundations class to help them in their first steps of faith. Listen, none of this would be possible without sponsors who are faithfully fulfilling their sponsorship pledge month after month after month, and people, others, who give generously in other ways toward these schools and other projects. By the way, none of those schools are funded, uh, the, the, the development of those campuses is not funded through your sponsorship. If you're sponsoring a child, that is a true one-to-one correlation between your giving and that child. But many of you are giving in other ways and participating in other other ways to help us raise those funds. Uh, we'll be taking an offering this morning that will go toward those projects. Uh, many of you are participating in RunFar. Thank you for that. Next month, we aim to run or walk 1,700 miles and raise $25,000 uh, through RunFar. We have 10 churches signed on to participate in this. That's a record for us. That's the most churches that we've ever recruited to be part of it. Uh, there's merchandise that will be available in the lobby today as well, and Most importantly, it's all about the VIPs, right? So most importantly, we need only seven new sponsors to cross the 1700 threshold, which has been taunting us for a while. I am so tired of looking at 1700 from down beneath it. So if you can find it in your heart and in your budget to sponsor a child today, there are uh, profiles of children who are available for sponsorship on the table in the lobby and uh, we would love to answer any questions that you might have. I'll be out there, the, the CM team will be out there and we'd be happy to talk with you about any of these things. Thank you, Covenant Fellowship, for being the kind of church that is eager to pursue greatness as biblically defined, embodying the life and mission of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen.